Hey, we've got a sponsor you're going to want to check out. There's a fun and challenging murder mystery game called June's Journey. This search for hidden objects will awaken your inner sleuth and project you into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hey, I'm genuinely excited and grateful for our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. Thanks to Athletic Greens supporting the Bureau podcast, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens, that's one word, dot com backslash frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Have you heard about the whistleblower in Ukraine? Asymmetrical warfare. I said enough. It's a sacrifice as a family. If Donald Trump is elected again, it will be all this and much, much worse. Politicizing of institutions erodes the institution. They've already politicized us, but maybe in sharing our story publicly, we can tell the whole story of what happened to us. That's still me, and I'm still not political. If you don't let them get to you, they will stop bothering you. Never let them see you sweat. We've heard the term power couple over the years, and it usually refers to political power of partners or partners who have a tremendous financial impact or perhaps media moguls um, who control aspects of the media. But today we're going to talk to someone who's part of a different kind of power couple. It involves the power of her voice, the clarity of her conscience and the justice in her judgments. We're delighted to have as our guest for this episode, Rachel Vinman. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Frank. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm excited about the discussion and just the fact that you're here with us and we're going to learn more about what you're doing, not only as part of a couple, but in your own right. You have been a powerful voice. And I want to I want to start by saying, you know, part of that in your own right part is, look, you're you're part of something called the Renew Democracy Initiative. I want to hear more about that. Let's be sure to get into that. And something we have in common, among several other things, is you're a podcast host Mm -hmm. hosting the Suburban Women Problem. So we're going to want to talk a little bit about where that's going. But welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to this conversation. Yeah. Um, so look, I always ask our guests to tell us a bit about their journey. And in your case, your journey, your husband's journey, a guy by the name of 
Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vinman, um, mm. is fascinating and is really the story that gets us here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you come from and where you begin to intersect with a guy who becomes Lieutenant Colonel <laughs> Alex Vinman and where that goes from, from there. Yeah, so I was born in Oklahoma, lived there for 24 years, and then I decided to move overseas. I, it was my first experience living overseas. Um, I lived in Israel for three years, um, did some work with an NGO, and then I moved back to the U.S. Um, shortly after 9-11. And I was actually a flight attendant. I had aspirations of working for the FAA, which is um, has a large training center in Oklahoma City. So that was my goal. And um, while I was a flight attendant, things got a little derailed when I met a guy named Captain Alex Vindman, who later became Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman. But um, yeah, once I met him, I guess uh, all bets were off and my life changed course dramatically got married. We immediately moved to Germany. We came back to the DC area where um, we had our first daughter who was born very early and she lived a week. She was born in uh, Bethesda, Maryland at the National Naval Medical Center. And um, after that, we lived in Ukraine for a year. It's a very tough year. And uh, came back. I got pregnant with our daughter, our surviving daughter, who's 10 and a half now. Um, she was born when Alex was in grad school in Boston. Then uh, after Boston, after that, we a uh, few more months in the States, and then we moved to Moscow for three years, where he was stationed at the embassy. And from Moscow, we moved back to DC, which was supposed to be a three-year tour. We bought our house um, without even seeing it, because we just wanted to you know, buy something that, that would work for us. And uh, so sight unseen from Moscow. And now we've been here uh, six years because mm. life changes again <laughs> all the time. Indeed. I Indeed. think that that's one thing that, you know, when people say your life has changed so much and it's true, but my life has changed many times <laughs> several right. in, in big right. ways. So even though I don't always love it, you got to just learn to roll with the punches or you'll mm. go crazy. I, uh, I don't want to gloss over something that you've just shared, which is the loss of a child mm -hmm. and, and the impact it has on a couple. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then and the trauma of dealing with that loss and then whether it equips you uh, or strengthens you as a couple or has another effect for, I think, some couples. And then all of the stress that you followed, you, you experienced thereafter with international moves. And then, of course, we're going to get to a, an incredibly stressful story for the, <laughs> for the two of you. But you, you have any thoughts or observations on the impact of that on, on you as a couple and then how it may or may not have shaped how you, you faced um, stress moving forward? You know, one of the toughest things about going through a difficult time like the loss of a child, which I think is one of the most difficult things a couple can face, is that everyone processes grief differently. Everyone processes everything differently. But when you're in a couple, you have this mirror with the loss of a child because you, you have someone that you're looking at every day and they're processing it very differently than what you know you're feeling. Because um, rarely, I've learned, will you be on the same page. And I think that just makes it a lot more acute um, and very difficult for that moment. But it's also a good, it was a good just lesson, a marriage lesson, if you will, 
because when we went through other things that were arguably very stressful as well, I knew, I knew from experience, Alex needed his time to process the whole impeachment debacle and his career, the impact on his career, a lot different than I did. So we had to give each other space. And um, so I guess you could say that moment of losing Sarah helped us, prepared us. But I don't, I, I mean, I think a better way to say it is just that everything you go through in life um, as individuals or a couple, I mean, it makes up who you are and you put those skills in your backpack and then when you need to use it, you can. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think, um, you know, for our listeners who are saying, this is interesting. Frank has Rachel Vindman on. Um, usually we're hearing from active duty or retired <laughs> FBI personnel. What's going on here? And I want to address that because I feel a commonality among any American families who have served this nation. Mm-hmm. And our listeners know from our FBI guests that it's a sacrifice as a family to serve, whether it's in the FBI or the United States military, particularly mm-hmm. if you're, you're posted abroad, particularly if you are uh, deployed to combat theaters, mm-hmm. there's a sacrifice, whether, whether it's a partner saying, I don't know if my partner's coming home today at the end of his police shift or mm-hmm. FBI yeah. day, or whether it's a, it's a troop family saying, we, we don't know um, what the next day holds for us, um, I, I, talk to me about the sacrifice of service for a family. Well, you know, as I said, I I had goals of working for the FAA, and um, you know, when I met Alex, that was completely derailed because he he I had to go wherever he was being stationed, and very shortly after we married, we, we moved to Germany. I think this is one of the main sacrifices that a lot of military spouses make of just it's hard to find a new job every one or two years and there was a while when we moved every one or two years so you really have to sit back and put your partner's career first which can be you know more challenging for some than others and for some it's 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 a financial issue it can be really difficult but i found one of the ways that i could cope with it or deal with it was to be very um I mean, my part of my identity, a huge part of my identity was, was being a military spouse. And I saw that as a form of service, as do most military spouses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's certainly not a unique outlook. And because, you know, I was fortunate enough to be at two embassies abroad and uh, certainly Department of State and all the other departments and agencies that are represented at embassies abroad. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, as well as Mm. FBI, Treasury, uh, I mean, you know, USAID, lots of people are stationed at embassies and the military sometimes gets all the credit. Everyone knows the sacrifices that military makes, but all those other people, everyone else in service, they do as well. Homeland security, you're moving all the time and it's really difficult to establish yourself, not just professionally, but also in a community. And it can be really, it can be really challenging. So the hit that a lot of uh, public servants have taken, um, particularly during the Trump years, was upsetting to me on a personal level because I thought it not only demeaned the service and sacrifice of the person who serves, again, whether that's in civilian government or the military, but it also demeans, I think, the family sacrifice and service as well, um, as if, because again, 
it's a family's choice and the sacrifices that everyone is making, including the children. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, my wife and I, uh, I've been married uh, for 36 years and we- Congratulations. Uh, that's quite an yeah. accomplishment. My husband always says he wouldn't wish the first six months of marriage on anyone. So that's oh, a really wow. a charming way. I don't think he should like write that in wedding cards. I don't think he does, but um, no, I mean, it's, it's challenging, you know, it's it's work. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's good to know that from the get-go. It's a lot of work. It, so. it is, and particularly with the stress of of moving and serving <laughs> and sacrifice. Yes. I, I mean, we're we you know we actually it's, uh, the number of moves and assignments uh, that we've had causes us to actually debate whether we count that one as a move or not. But we're somewhere around <laughs> we're somewhere about a dozen moves, you know, and that's mm-hmm. with with kids, and it's um it's fascinating. But there's a there's even a deeper aspect to this sacrifice and the concept of the entire family serving, and that's the role that the partner plays mm-hmm. in the other person's career service and decision making and i want to i want to talk about um you know sacrifice when it's really painful for the family in terms of the scenario where now your husband let's well i want to i want to get to your husband serving at the white house mm-hmm. and the the now well known um f- ukraine phone call and the role yes. he played in bringing to the public's attention what really was going wrong um, and that whole that whole scenario where as an individual and as a family, there has to be a decision made that's going to reverberate globally and certainly impact the family likely for the foreseeable future. Before we do that, I want to talk about the foreign assignments. I want mm-hmm. to talk about, we don't, we don't talk about this enough. The sacrifice of living abroad, and specifically, Alex was assigned to Moscow at mm-hmm. one point mm-hmm. in his in his, as a military attaché. What's that like living in a, <laughs> as we call in the business, a hostile domain? <laughs> Very hostile. I remember when we were in training every day. <laughs> it was like they would talk about the the tense places people were going because we were in a big class um, with, with people going all over the world. And it was like China, Africa, Russia, China, Africa, Russia. <laughs> like, why do I have to go into one of these places? Um, yeah. One is a, you know, obviously a huge continent. So, um, but, you know, I will say that I found once again, as is always the case in my military, my time as a military spouse was tremendous camaraderie among my peers. And I got to know people very well. And, um, you know, I, I do feel like the Defense Intelligence Agency and the military attache program falls under their purview, did a great job of just trying to, you know, to let us know we were never going to be alone and explain to us and actually more than even Department of State of prepare us for the environment to which we were going. So you, you can know things in theory, but when they actually happen in practice, though, there's there can be a disconnect there for everyone. So um, I like to tell the anecdotes, kind of my dinner party, cocktail party anecdote. Um, Not that I've been doing a lot of that lately, but the first week we arrived in Moscow, we lived in an apartment um, in the city and we were still pretty jet lagged. So my daughter was about 18 months and Alex got up early. He was going to work and he went to take our dogs out. And I didn't get up and lock the door from the inside. So we have many locks um, from the inside, but I was still in bed. And so he got back in the apartment and um, he 
he got me out of bed and just said, come here. I want to show you something. Or I don't know what he said. He kind of whispered something in my ear, which was a little weird. But we went into the entryway of our apartment and my wallet, which had a lot of rubles in it, they, someone had taken the money out and just laid it in a fan on the table there. And he showed it to me and I looked at him and I said, I, I always leave my money like this. Have you ever noticed before? Which was my way of telling the uh, security services who would obviously come in our apartment quietly while my daughter and I were sleeping. I know you were here. It doesn't bother me. It's actually quite an unrachel response, but I was trained to know that this would probably happen. And yep. it's, it's, I liken it to if, and I have two younger brothers. So if you don't let them get to you, they will stop bothering you. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, wow. you know, and, and that was, yep. um, so thank you to JJ and Pat for, for um, teaching me that lesson, but it's true. Just don't react. And the benefit to Moscow, as I always like to say this as well, no one was ever going to hurt us. It was just to mess with our heads. And um, yeah. so you kind of have to rise above. But, other, you know, Moscow is a beautiful city. And um, in so many ways, uh, you know, not what I expected, um, but in a good way. Yeah. And it was such an honor and a privilege to represent the United States military in that way for three years. It was it was really, really wonderful. But it was a sacrifice. Um my so we we went to Moscow a little early. There was an incident, and uh, someone had been sent home, and Alex was able to go immediately because he didn't need language training. So we went early, and in that year, um, my mom, who had brain cancer, uh, she passed away, and I didn't make it back in time to sort of see her conscious because there was a pretty rapid decline. And I, I only say that to kind of, again, once again, highlight, you know, the sacrifices that, again, not just military, but anyone who serves overseas or, or serves away from their family, because it's this constant, if there's a crisis at home back in the U.S., or even if you live in the U.S., like, you can't just live, leave your life and go, I mean, you can, but it's difficult because your family abroad needs you too. So, um, you know, it's just this constant trying to weigh of, we couldn't pack, we didn't have the option of packing up and moving to Oklahoma to be with her. So I, I had to only go when, you know, it was really, really necessary or I was going to be able to make an impact. And we, we oftentimes forget those sacrifices of being away from our, our families um, and serving. And again, this, this is across all departments and agencies of the U.S. government. We've got a fun new sponsor called June's Journey. If you like a good whodunit as much as I do, then you'll love June's Journey. You play the game as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. We all need a good diversion from our stressful lives right now. And June's Journey is the perfect game for that. With thousands of vivid scenes and new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Since you're listening to the Bureau... You know I spent my career solving mysteries. So, of course, I've been playing June's Journey to the point where it's hard to put down. It's casual gameplay that fits in whenever you need to escape. There's a detective, or FBI agent, in all of us. And your inner detective can be found by downloading June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
Let's talk some more about our new sponsor, Athletic Greens. You know me well enough to know that I won't do a health-related ad unless I'm using the product myself. I've been using Athletic Greens every morning now for weeks. I wanted an optimized immune system, and quite honestly, I was tired of taking a handful of vitamins and supplements every morning. When Athletic Greens came to me about this ad, I was leery about what it might taste like. I was wrong. Tastes great. And one scoop contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. It supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I use the travel packs when I hit the road. They're really convenient. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science. No artificial anything, no nasty chemicals, and it tastes good. For every purchase, they donate to organizations that help get nutritious foods to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially with flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com frank. Again, that's athleticgreens.com frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's get back to the podcast. You know, the anecdote you shared uh, about, you know, the, the reminder that, yes, indeed, there's a hostile intelligence service <laughs> that uh, is seeing and hearing everything and can enter our home at yeah. any time and just just let us know that they're there. And, and this concept of being calm under that pressure um, when it would get to anybody, but and, and then this kind of old cliche of never let them see you sweat. Yeah. Um, and, and so <laughs> I want to now move to a period of time in your family's mm -hmm. service that is somewhat similar in the sense that you, this didn't happen in a hostile domain now, mm -hmm. but rather there was this sense of, boy, we've got some potential adversaries and they're here, maybe even here in the White House. And, mm -hmm. and I want to see this through your eyes, even even kind of the never let them see you sweat, but not because it's the Russian intelligence service, but rather because there's a threat much closer to home. Tell us, you, tell us the story through your eyes of what happened at the White House, the Ukraine phone call, and how you saw it and responded to it. So in the summer of 2019, we had, um, we were going through an accidental kitchen renovation did you say, um, did you say an accidental kitchen renovation? And it was accidental because we had a big leak and yeah. um, it had been going on for a number of months and uh, like the subfloor was rotted. It was, it was horrible. So um, it was a dishwasher leak, but in any event, we were not living in our house. We we're living down the street, a few doors down in my brother and sister-in-law's house because we would have lived in a hotel, but my husband and brother-in-law commuted together. So we had to live in their basement. And, you know, I had no idea anything was going on with Ukraine, that there was anything untoward. And I, the first inkling I had was one night, I've said this a few, a few, in, a few times in interviews is one night we were laying in bed and Alex said, Hey, can you check out my professional liability insurance tomorrow? And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, oh, there's, have you heard about the whistleblower in Ukraine? 
And I said, oh, you know, I meant to ask you about that. I heard something, but then I forgot to look it up. He was like, yeah, there's a whistleblower about a phone call. There's only two phone calls. So I knew about the phone calls because one of them was on Easter Sunday in April. And the other one was in July, right before we're going on vacation. We had to sort of change our plans um, one day. So I, I knew about both phone calls. And he just said, yeah, I was on the phone call. Check on my insurance. He rolls over, goes to sleep. I was awake all night. So then the next day, I kind of pinned him down a little bit more. And he didn't, he still didn't say much. Um, the following week is when the whistleblower complaint was made public. And then he told me a little bit more. And I read the complaint. And I was able to connect some dots. And, and we started getting things in line uh, for if he was subpoenaed to testify. And we were very unsure if that would happen because um, he worked at the White House, his executive privilege piece, et cetera. So one Wednesday night, um, again, he was, he received an email that he was subpoenaed and um, he testified a couple of weeks later. And I think still until the moment that his opening statement was made public, I don't think we had any idea or appreciation of how our lives would change. That said, he was definitely on the radar of the White House. And through a series of events, we both knew they were monitoring his emails. They were monitoring everything about him. And they weren't that great at it, maybe not even as good as the Russians. Uh, but they, and again, I mean, I we have lived in this kind of environment, so we knew exactly what to expect. We also had some media scrutiny. Again, I know we, we were trained on how to, you don't get more fascinating. You don't get to be, you're not a cooler person just because um, you live overseas or that's how the saying goes, but it fell in the blank, you know? So no reporters had ever called us to show up on our doorstep before. So it was quite obvious what they wanted. And we were able to handle that, I think, in a normal way, again, because of our training and, and what we had lived through in Moscow. So, hey, thanks, Russians. Um, but it, it was really, even after the testimony, the, the physical danger, everything was um, a matter of just maintaining constant situational awareness um, and security at our home, making sure that we varied our routines and ways. I mean, this is a bizarre way to be operating from our home in Northern Virginia, but we felt it was necessary. And by taking these steps, you know, we felt a little bit more comfortable. Well, first, it's a, just a commentary. It's a, it's a rather sad state of affairs that here we are comparing, you know, your, your experience in serving in Moscow in that hostile environment to now what you're experiencing um, yeah, back, I don't do it to be hyperbolic, home. you know, I mean, I, I know there's a tendency of people yeah. to maybe assume that, but this is the complete reality of the situation. You know, when I share this, I do it as a warning. If Donald Trump is elected again, and it's very possible he will be the candidate and the Republican candidate in 2024, it will be all this and much, much worse. Yeah, I, I, this, this, I'm, I'm glad that we, you've brought this up right here in our conversation because this, this is a springboard to something that, an issue that's really near and dear to my heart, which is this concept of going from, and this is where uh, you and I, I think, have another commonality, and certainly um, with Alex, and that is you spend a career in 
apolitical, nonpartisan government service. I did Mm -hmm. in the FBI. Um, Sadly, we're at a point now where, you know, the the public is so partisan and polarized that they they view everything through that, that partisan lens. But I can tell you that the rank and file FBI personnel do not gather around the water cooler in the field office and chat about elections, who they're voting for, or what candidate they like or don't. It simply doesn't happen. And now you and Alex have been thrust into this political world that you, I'm sure the decision, and I want to talk about that decision that was made um, and, and, and the testimony and the, the decision to come forward and how that turned into the, a, a perceived political move. And, and really, y- your service had been mm-hmm. apolitical up to then. Tell, tell me about that, that, that disparity in your yeah. career versus what's now hit, hitting you square in the face. It was a difficult decision to make. It was truly one day I just had enough. Alex was speaking to Jeffrey Goldberg, who was like, who was writing an article about him and and the suckers and losers comment. He's the editor of the Atlantic and the suckers and losers comment that president Trump made about members of the military. He had reported on that and his family was getting death threats and they had to move for their safety. And it was just, I said enough, we're already political. They've already politicized us. There's a segment of the population that already believes that what Alex did was politically motivated. So that's already been decided by them and I'm not gonna change their minds, but maybe in sharing our story publicly and going public, we can explain to other people that might be on the fence, we can tell the whole story of what happened to us and maybe that would make a difference in the 2020 election. So that's what we did. Because there were, I mean, again, there were so many people who already thought that no matter what, I mean, they had just, they've been brainwashed, they've been told lies. And and there's a, a certainly a personal responsibility, they want to believe these things, so they choose to do so. But at the same time, there's no alternate narrative for them. You know, this, this is all they hear, again, by their own choice, but still. So I made the decision to do, uh, we did an at with Vote Vets and Lincoln Project. And then after that, I was asked to do an interview on CNN and I more fully told my story, uh, our story to Brianna Keeler. And from there, you know, there were other, there were various moments. And then, um, as you mentioned, we'll get to in a minute, the podcast, uh, which is really not about me, but, um, you know, that, that, that opportunity came about. And at every step, there's this idea that, you know, what we say or what we do, it's, it is very hard and it's very uncomfortable because even as a military spouse, I was apolitical as well. Um, Cause when you're representing the United States, you can't, you can't say anything. I, I was not overseas when Trump was president, but I can assure you president Obama was not super popular, even among our allies, even among our European allies who would think be a little friendlier. That is not always the case, but you have to just smile and nod and, you know, listen. So I'm, pretty practiced at that and keeping everything really close to the vest. But uh, we don't have the luxury of doing that now, Frank. We've got everyone who has a platform needs to speak out and needs to educate people. And to your point about, um, we see the way, as I kind of touched on earlier, we see the way um, Hollywood and TV portrays FBI. I mean, there's literally a show called FBI. And not a bad show. I've watched it before. But the thing is, is, is everything is tied up in a, with a nice bow at the end of every episode, more or less. And life isn't like that. It's a lot messier. 
And it's the same, you know, in Congress, it's the same people work on things for years and years. And there's this tendency, I guess, because we we assume that, that life is is like this, because we this is the this is the only part, the only side of it we see, unless it's something like your podcast, which I think does a, a good job of of you know showing a, a more complete picture. But it goes into this narrative that's just been attacked and, and to say that the FBI is political, that the CIA is political, and it's simply not the case. The military is not political either. You can take one and two instances out, and, and but that's not the totality of these organizations, but that's what's highlighted, and it's very dangerous. Well, what it, well, what, what it does is it, this, this politicizing of institutions erodes the institutions, whether we're talking about the Department of Defense or the Department of Justice, exactly. uh, the FBI, or even, even in the middle of a pandemic, the Centers for Disease Control now becoming you know, political in people's eyes. It's it's nonsense, and I, I've had family members uh, approach me, uh, uh, my own family members, and say, Frank, you know, because I'm on TV a lot, and I'm on, a, I, I'm affiliated with a certain network that people perceive a certain way, and they say, Frank, when did you become political? And I, I look them in the eye, and, and I go, I'm not political. I'm the same guy who, in the FBI, had to identify and address national security threats. That's still me, and I'm still not yeah. political. And and I, I and this this decision to to speak out and do something is what I want to talk about with you, and particularly I want you to tell us about um, what you're doing about the the problems, including the podcast, including the mm-hmm. Renew Democracy Initiative. Well, it's been important to me from the beginning that if I ever do anything, back to the ad that started it all, I wanted it to be. Um, authentic to me and not not be a stretch. So um, one of the reasons why I spoke with Brianna Keeler at CNN is she's a military spouse. And I obviously I, you know, we have that commonality and um, we were able she was able to understand and we were able to discuss that. So the podcast, um, it's it's three women uh, we co-host. The name comes from when before the 2018 midterms, even before the midterms, the Republicans knew uh, that that they were going to face something pretty bad. And Lindsey Graham said, we have a suburban women problem. And he's right, they do. Uh, but but I think both parties have a suburban women problem. Maybe that's what we're finding out, that suburban women are not a monolith. That's, that's absolutely true. So I liken it to uh, the group of moms at the bus stop, uh, which I can see out my window here as I, as I record this. We, we are all moms. Uh, my daughter is in fifth grade. So this is the most sixth year that she's been at the same school. And, you know, some don't have kids at elementary school anymore and some have moved and we all lived in the same neighborhood, but we came from different backgrounds, different political views. And we got together every morning as we sent our kids off to school and waved them off on the bus. And, you know, we, we laughed and celebrated and cried together and our foundation was that we were women and we were moms and we have children at the same school and even when there were problems at the school we might not have agreed of how they should be addressed but we could discuss it civilly we could help each other through so many life events and in the podcast that that's kind of I think what we try to do is is bring people in that we might not normally hear from that we wouldn't cross paths on on a daily basis listen to them so every week we have kind of a bigger guest 
And, and I love, I mean, it's very fun to interview um, a, a more famous people, but we also talk to an everyday mom, as we call it, or woman, I mean, it doesn't have to be a mom, but an everyday woman who is making a difference. And I love these stories so much. I am so inspired and heartened by them because it's people who have seen a need and they've gone to see what they can do about it. They didn't look to the right or the left to see if someone else would be better, because maybe someone else would be better, but they knew they could do it and they did it. And that's been one of my favorite things that I've done. Mm -hmm. And you're, and, and just to remind folks, as you're saying, you, you are a Virginia mom. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And we've, we've, you know, we've experienced uh, the, the Virginia gubernatorial election mm -hmm. and the, the uh, assertion uh, of critical race theory, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as yes. an appeal to suburban moms, perhaps, and you know, you're you've you've watched that happen um, at, at close hand. Yeah, it was difficult. Um, I was trying to tell the McAuliffe campaign, "You've got to speak out about this," and their strategy was to not talk about CRT because it's not being taught in Virginia schools, which intellectually probably makes sense, but it doesn't make sense because if someone has a fear and you're not addressing it, you can't just ignore it. It doesn't just go away because you say, oh, don't worry, it doesn't exist. You're going to be fine. Um, that that's not, that's not reality. It was frustrating for me to watch it. My, my guess is that Alex from his military career is very familiar with the phrase asymmetrical warfare, yes. which is the non-traditional approaches mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's what we see the Republican Party engaged mm -hmm. in is this asymmetrical approach. It doesn't have to be true. Right. It just has to, it just has to invoke the right emotions. Mm -hmm. And, and you have to see the Democrats say, recognize that mm -hmm. and not respond with traditional logic and reason. Yeah. I mean, the Russians are really good at using asymmetric warfare. Yeah. They've, they're masters at it actually. Yeah. Um, and the, especially to persuade uh, their their own citizenry, so I it was you know I st we 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 both worked really hard for the McAuliffe campaign and it didn't turn out the way I wanted. I have a pretty good handle on why that happened, but mostly I think people who run for office need to listen to the voters. Um, again, whether these concerns are real or not, if if we are going and we're going to still have the Fox News's, all the disinformation, OANN, all the stuff, all these campaigns pumping out this disinformation, but you just have to say, hey, that's not true. I mean, right. you know, it's just, it's not the way it is. And, and you have to really kind of, you have to stay in front of it or at least try to keep up with it. So yeah, if it's a, if it's a voter concern, it's a real concern. Yeah, that's, yeah, just absolutely. Way, that's just the yeah. way it works. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me about the Renew Democracy Initiative. Um, it's fascinating. See, I've, che I've, checked out the, I've checked out the website. I'm even more intrigued than I was previously. What's that all about? I'm, I'm still confused about why they asked me to be part of it. I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way, but um, if you look at the names, like I think I'm maybe me and one other uh, suburban mom, but you know, it's, it's a, an organization whose goal is to protect democracy. And part of that is by raising awareness when democracy is being eroded in the United States. Um, a good example of that is my co-host Jasmine Clark on the podcast. She's a state legislator in Georgia in Gwinnett County. And last week there was an effort completely secret to change a lot of laws in Gwinnett County to change up the, the make of the um, school board 
who could run, who, who could, if they could remove members that were duly elected members of the school board, as well as um, the makeup of, I don't know if it's like a county council or something, they wanted to double the number of members on it. So, because it's Democrat now and they wanted to change it. So these instances like that, and then a lot of the, the redistricting are ways to undermine the democratic process to stack it in the Republicans favor. And these are the things that Renew Democracy Initiative seeks to highlight. One of the things there, the big um, initiatives that we have now is uh, we just had a letter signed by over 50 dissidents from 30 countries that are, um, I liken it to um, the scene from Jaws where they're on the shore, the United States were just frolicking in the water, playing around. And, you know, we have these people from other countries who have experienced this authoritarianism or creeping authoritarianism or are standing on the shore screaming, get out, get out of the water. There's a shark behind you. Do something now while you still can. And we're just having a good time because we have everything we want. And hey, uh, you know, it's, it's okay. I don't really need to get involved in politics. It, my life is fine. It's, it's you know, it's going to be fine no matter who's in charge. And the economy was okay with Trump. So I think there's just still a lot of complacency, people who don't understand exactly what's at stake and who better to tell us than people who've lived it. Mm. Um, and, you know, we have these dissidents, so many of whom live in the United States because they're not able to live in the countries anymore where they they would love to fight and continue, but their lives are literally in danger. And again, not to be hyperbolic, but if Donald Trump is elected again, I see people like me, like you, our lives and livelihoods certainly being in danger from someone, from a vindictive person who has shown us time and time again what he is willing to do to those who he thinks are going to be in his way or have in any way demeaned him. Rachel, your public service continues to this day. And while it may have been behind the scenes as a partner of someone serving in the military, it's now. It's now front and center, and you're to be commended for continuing the public service, even when it's painful and demands sacrifice. I, I know my wife early in my FBI career um, started saying, hey, if you get to be called special agent, then I'm a special spouse. And, <laughs> and, um, I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're, you're one of those uh, special spouses and now uh, a powerful voice in your own right. Thank you for your service to the country and what you're continuing to do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And just for highlighting the voices of so many whose stories are rarely told. Indeed. Thanks. Our guest has been Rachel Vindman on this episode of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Next time, please join us for yet another compelling discussion. In 2006, New Yorker magazine described Ali Soufan as coming closer than anyone to preventing the September 11th attacks and implied that he would have succeeded had the CIA been willing to share information with him. He resigned from the FBI in 2005 after publicly chastising the CIA for not sharing intelligence with him, which could have prevented the attacks. He's written two major books, one on Al-Qaeda, one on the rise of the Islamic State. He's the CEO of the Sufan Group. And if you've ever watched the Hulu TV series, the Looming Tower. You know it's about 
former FBI agent, Ali Soufan. Ali Soufan will be our guest next time on The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 